As I'm speaking to you, Halloween is coming up, and we're presenting an episode that mentions a lot of ghoulish stuff. So if you're squeamish with descriptions of violence, you might want to skip this one. Well, let's let's say you were in California. I might say, howdy, you know, how's it going, you know, in your part of California? And William's my name, and uh, I'm a... Let me let me start over again. What was the question? I completely lost my train of thought. You said you have kind of a spiel. A spiel oh, my yeah. spiel. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me start over again. If I was gonna write to you, I would probably uh, ask you how you're doing and say something to the effect of "You've probably been better," and I'd say that I can't complain. And I'd, I'd say where I live. It's X amount of miles south of San Francisco, X amount of miles north of Los Angeles, and I'd say it's right smack dab in the middle of no fucking Waresville. I'd start a paragraph kind of explaining a little bit about myself. I'd say my age. I'd talk about my interpersonal relationships. I'd mention my vegan diet. My wife and I have elected not to have any children. I'll go into saying, you know, children are definitely the opposite of fun. I sometimes will print off jokes that I find really funny uh, and send five to 15 pages of printouts. Yeah, that's uh, about it. When you actually can formulate a friendship, when you find that niche relationship and you have it going, it transcends all the nonsense. Some people want to go out and help the homeless. Some people want to go visit old people that don't have anybody visit them in nursing homes, and that's great. You know, everybody's got their place. It just happens to be that I do it with these types of people. A friend of mine, you know, who I consider to be a, a rather wise person, one time told me, you know, in life, you have to know what you stand for. You have to choose a side. And I thought about what they said. I know where I stand. I know the side I've chosen. This person was a Charles Manson supporter. From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, Murder Town, USA, featuring Will Harder. I always wondered how far up was up, like where up stopped. My mom was Roman Catholic, so she said, you go up to heaven. So I thought, okay, heaven, there's a brick wall, and it stops there. And I, I then I thought, well, what's behind that? And it started bothering me, and then I became not, not mortal fear aware, but I knew I was going to die. And I didn't like that concept at five, six, seven, eight, nine years old. My parents wanted to culture me as much as they could, so we did take a long trip in particular. We Eurorailed from South Spain through France, Austria, Germany. There's so much history in Europe, but a lot of it's violent. When you go into the Tower of London, there's torture devices everywhere. And you think about, oh, holy smokes, that does not look comfortable. I remember going to Italy. I remember it being pretty dirty. And uh, hearing my parents kind of explaining to me about the Colosseum and, you know, feeding Christians to lions. I remember when we got to the Colosseum, As I walked up and I looked at the floor, there was no floor anymore. There was all the underground different cells and places where they would store the animals. It didn't look like the pictures, and that kind of bothered me. I was like, man, it looked so much better in the pictures. I remember this picture real clearly. It was a picture of a a Colosseum battle, and the victor was standing over the defeated gladiator. 
The audience was all thumbs down booing. And that meant the guy was going to get killed. It wasn't a good fight. I couldn't wrap my head around a person stabbing another person. Man, what if it was me? It scared me. You might think this is bizarre for a six to seven year old to think to himself, if I had to kill somebody, I didn't see how they could push a sword in up close like that. And then the other thing I didn't get is how people would watch that as enjoyment. This was probably my first introduction to violence in a, in a sense that it was entertainment. So, you know, if you come into my house and you look to your right, next to the door is a Ted Bundy subpoena. Above that's a self-portrait by Charles Manson. And then above that is a birth announcement greeting card sent from Plainfield's prodigal son, Edward Gein. And then if you look directly in front of you, there's a kind of a display case that has five human skulls in it. And one of the old baby pullers, a... Looks like a pair of forceps, kind of creepy. A screwdriver on the top, which came out of the trunk of a murderer's car. And as you walk into my living room to the right, 70 crucifixes I have on one wall. The O.J. Simpson football. Signed a Church of Satan priesthood certificate. Hand tracing by Danny Rowling, and then feathers that are just painted. Yes, yes, I know it's not vegan, but whatever, we bought them at a museum. I kind of call this the Manson Corner. Small portrait of Charles Manson. Six guitar strings and a guitar pick. Charles Manson courtroom sketches. Charles Manson lunchbox. Continue to walk. There's a Dr. Kevorkian medication bottle. Huge art pieces on the wall. I mean, Saddam Hussein signed regime documents. John Gacy painting. Large Arthur Shaw cross pieces. Uh, in short, that's kind of uh, the main living spaces of my home, which still doesn't even begin to cover. Like our bathrooms are murdered theme. They have bloody handprints everywhere and bloody feet mats and. If there was a serial killer culture, if there's a, a true crime type lifestyle, I'm living it here. I don't know if you have a favorite piece or a favorite item around your house, but I was hoping we could have you pick I, one. I, it's, you... it's not tangible. It's the visits. My favorite piece is the collective visiting experience. I mean, gosh, how do you put... It's not in terms of favorite. I mean, these were f close friends of mine. The first serial killing case I was ever interested in was the case of Sean Sellers. Sean was uh, a young kid, troubled. Uh, parents were divorced. Uh, his dad was a drug addict, alcoholic. He was a big, avid player of Dungeons and Dragons, and he ended up uh, dabbling in the occult. I began to think of demons as my friends. And got it in his head that he wanted to kill people. So we began to prove our allegiance to Satan by breaking God's commandments. In the end, there was only one that remained unbroken. You shall not murder. So he, uh, when he was 16, he shot a store clerk. entered through his heart and through his lungs, and blood completely splattered on the opposite wall, and we walked out. We didn't take any money. We didn't take any merchandise. We only took the life of an innocent man for Satan. managed to get away with that crime and then six months uh, later he murdered his stepfather and mother while they I slept. I in my parents' bedroom. Remember I was looking down at them and I raised the gun up and I pointed it at my father's head and 
I squeeze the trigger. And then I immediately raise it to where my mother's head was and squeeze the trigger again. And I turn the lights on. And I looked at what was before me. And I felt like this big rock had just been taken off my shoulders. And just this great burden had been lifted from me. And I began to laugh. Why, when you were a teenager, did you feel that connection to that case? Well, I mean, he was uh, 16. I think I was uh, 15 when I first started reading about his case. He blamed demonic possession. I was studying occult philosophy at the time. I, I identified, you know, as a Satanist at the time. Me being a troubled kid, I was always worried that somehow this was going to be my lot in life. I was reading books like Kids That Kill, Walking Time Bombs. It made me get worried somehow I was going to just explode, like I was going to be a walking time bomb. Yeah, it never, never did uh, happen. Because it was one of two cases that really got me thinking about crime when I was in my mid-teens, I just call it my favorite. It makes it easier when I'm dealing with the people I visit. If they ask me, what case are you most interested in or what's your quote-unquote favorite case, I can say somebody whom I've never met and isn't alive, so it doesn't make anybody feel like, oh, I wish I'd have ate brains or I wish I would have killed more people. Is that a thing that actually happens, that people want you to pick them as their favorite serial killer? I actually had one person say that to me, a young lady who was convicted of double murder. She said, man, I wish I'd have killed more people. And I was just like, no, man, that's... But yeah, I understood what she was saying, and it was more so in jest. Some of these people, you know, have rage behind their their murders, so I didn't I didn't want to offend anybody. I guess speaking back to when it all first started, it was just it just it was something I needed because I didn't have anything going. I was really unhappy with, you know, my station in life. I mean, I was using drugs back then, pretty strung out, just gotten off parole. I didn't have uh, the greatest job on the planet. Uh, my girlfriend had just got done sleeping with my two best friends. Yeah, I was really heartbroken and decided one night I was, I didn't know how to work the internet really. I'd, you know, I'd you know, been on once or, you know, a little bit, but the whole explosion happened with me in prison. Like I didn't know what Google, I didn't know how to search, but I decided to type into a search engine. I typed in Richard Ramirez. In the summer of 1985, Southern California was held hostage by a rabid creature of the night. It's called the Night Stalker Talking Crime Spree. Raging who has no morals, no scruples, no ethics. Particularly heinous. I mean, he he started as a, a burglar and moved into like you know molesting children and, and robbing houses, and eventually he started you know doing home invasion and he style. Found a couple, a male and a female. He would eliminate the male as quickly as possible. He found recreation in killing people, inflicting pain, unconsensual, violent sex and sodomy as a form of recreation to, to rape a woman and then, you know, try to cut her heart out, you know, or remove her eyes. And really, it was pretty nasty stuff. And I remember coming across a website that had some Richard Ramirez art. Even in my depression and, you know, alcohol and drug use and, and all this negative things in my life, Seeing the artwork kind of 
sparked a sense of excitement, interest. So I decided to track down Richard Ramirez's prison number. And when I found his prison number, I, I wrote him a letter. What, what inside you was saying, I'm going to sit down today and I'm going to write this letter to Richard Ramirez? I wanted one of those goddamn pieces of artwork. That's why. And I knew I wasn't going to go to Walmart and get one. I was already interested in the concept of taking life and doing it for recreation and enjoyment. I wanted stuff connected to it. I wanted something put together in Ramirez's hand, the same hand that committed all those crimes. I wanted that. And um, he responded back. Very short missive, didn't say much. Greetings, got your letter. I'm not allowed to sell my drawings, but I'll see what I can do about sending you a free one in the future. I'll think about answering a few of your questions. I don't much go into religion or my case on paper. Mail is censored. Do you write other prisoners? Do you have family? Work or go to school? Send pictures if you can. Take it easy, Richard. And that's it. I remember when I got it, it just... Man, it put a smile on my face. We started writing back and forth. He did two satanic-themed drawings for me. Real violent-styled art, but he got in a... He got in trouble. Went to the hole and lost, uh, you know, all his stuff, and he stopped doing the real satanic stuff. The rest of it just became cheesy dinosaurs and stuff like that. I remember we asked him to do a SpongeBob SquarePants, and he did one. My wife was very young when I met her, and she was a bit of a SpongeBob fan. And I became one, kind of, too. And it just became sort of a, one of the little things we did. We had a couple other serial killers do SpongeBob. I will say I definitely got more out of my visits with him than all his letters combined, really. In uh, January of 2005, I was sitting behind a pane of glass in front of Richard Ramirez in San Quentin State Prison. It was my first visit with a quote-unquote serial killer or mass mass murderer. Back then, San Quentin had a much bigger budget, so there was, you know, guards everywhere. You went in, you filled out the little visitation slip, you went through a metal detector, your stuff went through an x-ray machine, then you had to stop at a, another checkpoint where they had three officers that sat in an air-conditioned room who did nothing. Anyway, once we, we got in, I remember seven of these windows in a, in a row, and this isn't like a Texas death row or, you know, a big picture window. This was a real small window that's 18 inches by 20 inches. Only one of them has a phone and it just happens to be the one Ramirez is at. The rest of them have this awful speaker thing that you have to speak through. And Ramirez told me this, that you, you know, you'd have to talk through this awful speaker. And he wanted us to try to uh, memorize American Sign. Let me tell you what we didn't memorize. He said, oh, it's lucky we have the phone. And then he immediately starts trying to talk to me in sign language. And I'm looking at him like, yeah, no. And he's like, oh, you didn't study the sign language sheets I sent? And I was like, yeah, no. When I looked at his hands, I remember thinking to myself, man, this guy, those hands tried to rip hearts out, you know, stabbing them out of people's chest. I mean, that those hands plucked out eyes. 
And I remember thinking to myself, man, you, you can't you can't get this out of a book. And it was just, there's so many people that want to watch, you know, documentaries or look up, you know, interviews on YouTube. And here I am, I'm getting my own personal interview. And it was all mine. Nobody else was there. It was just me and Ramirez. And uh, it was a lot of fun. When you looked at him, I mean, he was just a man, but he was a killer, a vicious monster of a, of an individual. But you talked to him, he was soft-spoken. He, uh, he, uh, his fingernails were neatly trimmed. His teeth were, were pretty messed up. Uh, one time he had his shirt, uh, he, he missed a button. I mean, you, you couldn't help but feel, you know, in, in a way kind of sorry because he was so socially awkward. He really had this bashful, boyish side. Unless you knew about his case, he was actually cordial and polite. He had a dark sense of humor and he appreciated humor and would laugh. For about two and a half years, the only person I wrote was Ramirez. We exchanged probably a letter every three weeks. I was actually rather disappointed with our correspondence. It it, it got to where uh, it's like, well, shit, I guess I should write Richard back. You might as well have been getting letters from an 11-year-old. Hey, how's it going? Do you like cars? My favorite car is Corvette. If there's any public pools where you live, bet you could get some pictures of hot chicks. Uh, uh, could you send some stamps? I'll end here. Your friend Richard. I don't think Richard Ramirez was really my friend. I, I realized that I never really got to know him, and even though I got to talk with him and stuff, and he was polite and cordial, probably if he was given the opportunity, he would murder me and would rape my wife. And, and not think twice about it. Oh, I fucking think I rambled on too no, much, no, man. No, let no, me no. take it. Let me try it one more. You sure that was good, man? I felt like I talked way too much. I'm trying to... I don't know why we've talked so much. This is one thing I think I'm getting wrong. Hang on, let me, let me ask my wife something. What are you... What was you saying? A year later, I was visiting with Charles Manson. I mean, and it just spiraled, became this big part of my life. Ramirez would call or Manson would call and, and it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, there's Charlie. Or, oh, yep, there's Richard. You know, hey, you know, how's it going? Before you know it, I was traveling to other states and staying at people's who paroled homes, meeting their families, their parents. And I mean, it just became kind of like all consuming. I haven't really sat down and, and made a list of every inmate I've visited in, in quite some time. I, I know it's well over 80. I visited the Cleveland Strangler. The deaths of 11 women. The party monster in New York. Hours to realize that he was dead, but we thought he was just Tommy Lencells, who was executed. First time I killed somebody, and it was such a rush. Charles Ng. shall be punished by death. On death row, I've seen Sunset Slayer Douglas Clark. We're all dying here, Diane. Uh, toolbox killer Lawrence Bittaker. Miss Leopard on the breast with cold metal pliers. Riverside prostitute killer Bill Suff. Individual goes above and beyond what is necessary to kill the person. It tells you just how gratifying it is for him to expose himself. On and on and on. I there's just so many uh, uh, people I've visited, and sometimes I'll I'll forget one in the back of my mind, like oh. In August, I was in France, and I was able to spend some time with uh, the vampire of Paris, Nicolas Clos, paroled murderer, grave robber, and cannibal. I stayed in the, the man's home with him. He was a wonderful host. You know, my wife was a little concerned he might eat us. 
imagine buying a painting from a guy who mutilated and murdered at least six young boys. The collecting and sale of items tied to some of the most notorious killers in American history. Serial killer trading cards and action figures. Memorabilia from serial killers. It's called... It's called murderabilia. 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 I tend to stay away from the word murderabilia. I just like to call it what it is. It's true crime-related memorabilia, you know. are found chiefly in the more shadowy provinces of the e-commerce world. Websites like MurderAuction.com. I didn't set out to, like, you know, make it, this a business. It just kind of kept building and, and building uh, naturally on itself. You know, if you're into collecting and this is your niche, Murder Auction's the hub. This isn't new. When Dillinger was shot, people were running dipping handkerchiefs in his blood. When Abraham Lincoln was shot, they were tearing apart the house he died in. I mean, I don't know how many Jesse James guns were sold by his widowed wife, but she had a whole barrel of them. Oh yeah, this was a gun my husband owned, boom, and she was selling them all day. I, I didn't start this. The most common way for an item to come onto the market is a person, usually a, a, a male in his early 20s, will write under the guise of, uh, you know, a, a friendship as a woman, be flirtatious, and then the inmate will be feel, you know, important, a connection, and they will do artwork for that quote-unquote female and that the man who received the artwork, once they get it, they will turn around and sell it for profit, completely unbeknownst to the inmate. Would you pay money for a greeting card signed by serial killer Charles Manson's hair that was sold in the form of a swastika? $149. Foot scrapings from the railway killer's own foot? $150. Money is being made off of people's murders and other violent crimes, sometimes by the killers themselves. Believe me, the inmates aren't making money off of this. They're not. I've never just up and paid an inmate. Let's say, for example, even it's being done and somebody sells a $20 letter. How much can you really send back to the inmate? I mean, a living inmate who's, let's say, killed five people whose letters sell for, we'll just say $30. I mean, really, how many ways can you split 30? You mentioned that there are some things that you won't allow to be sold on the site, though. Is that right? Yeah, there, there needed to be a line. There was one incident... I'm talking about some grave dirt from the grave of Texas dragging death victim James Byrd Jr. Uh, was up on the site with a, a piece of the road where he was dragged. And uh, it, it did create a pretty big stir. It certainly affected the town of Jasper. And, and, and while the items were up, I, I kind of thought to myself, if, like, I had, let's say I had an eight-year-old girl and some son of a bitch raped her and killed her and did that to, let's say, 11 other girls... And, you know, somebody came to my daughter's resting place and scooped up a baggie of dirt and put it online. That would probably piss me off. And I would feel really helpless, and I would feel like perhaps my daughter's gravesite had been defiled. So, yeah, I, I made a rule about victim burial plots that, you know, even grave rubbing, which is a completely, I don't want to say normal, but it's a, it's a hobby that people do. Grave rubbings, dirt, photos, flower petals, nothing related to a victim's burial plot can be sold. The other items are uh, photographs of children of either offenders or of victims. That would be disallowed. 
and the other item is anything that's related to the victims of the 9-11 uh, attacks. There was somebody uh, who brought a TSA listing for Flight 93, you know, had the TSA printout, the manifest with all the names of the passengers, and they contacted me and asked if they could sell it, and I, I told them it was a historical piece, um, that it belonged in a museum, but it couldn't be sold on, on my website, and the guy asked me why, and I, and I told him, because, you know, it's because I said, and it wasn't like I just randomly picked these things. I mean, I really thought long and hard about, you know, why didn't I include the Holocaust? Well, that's not really an American thing. And if I was Europe-born, perhaps that would be uh, a rule instead of 9-11 items. I just, there had to be some something because, you know, these other sites that are owned by individuals, they go to graves and, and take stuff. And, and I just, yeah, I, I don't want to be party to that. I'm just curious about whether there has ever been any kind of any kind of monetary exchange, and what, and if so, what for? I mean, I sent every inmate that I wrote and visited to in Texas money, and I was banned from visiting Texas for that. People fail to realize that the inmates are completely dependent on help from the outside, and unfortunately, most people choose to abandon their loved ones when they become convicted of crimes, so they don't have any support. They don't have jobs. I have to send money for them to buy stamps. And, and yeah, the inmates that did artwork for me, I did send them more money because it's uh, they had to get the art supplies. I know I'm talking very fast right now. I try to talk slower when I'm answering your questions. My wife always tells me I talk too fast. And I talk too fast when I'm trying to say things because I'm always just trying to get everything in as fast as I can. I'm not on drugs. Uh, my cousin one time, she asked me, you know, what Charles Manson's favorite ice cream was. And I asked him, and Charles Manson said them all. I love them all, all 31 flavors. Yeah, it's a kind of a silly answer, but I mean, if you wonder that, you just get stuck wondering. I get to ask the questions, and I can ask whatever I want. I mean, I earned it. I started to write Charles Manson back in 2005. I remember one time I was telling him that the environmental movement was picking up some steam. This was right around when Al Gore was coming out with an inconvenient truth. And he said, oh, truth, you say? And I go, yeah, an inconvenient truth by Al Gore. And Charlie's response to me was, Al Gore, huh? Al Gore. We slaughtered nine fucking people and nobody listened to us. And I didn't know what to say to that. I was like, oh, okay, Charlie, my bad. I'd like to clean up the water. I'd like to go up in the mountains and start at the top of the mountains and clean the springs up. When they were in court, the environmental theme was something that constantly got clean brought up. all the way to the ocean. They thought that the death of the environment was a more pressing issue than nine people being killed. All old beer cans and whether people had been killed, whether people hadn't been killed, nobody was listening. And he feels people still aren't doing enough and, and certainly not fast enough. Because I'm living in my child's world now. I'm working on his world. My world already went to the gas chamber. He told me, you know, I don't know who Charles Manson is. His shoes are too big for me. I, I can't fit into those shoes. There's a time for me. Who was Charles Manson, the person? How, how do you describe him? I mean, he was a he was a convict. You know, he, he tried to get over you know where he could. He loved playing music. One of the early things he said to me 
If I'd had a, a, a brother like you and, and a father like you, I don't know where I'd be, but I know I wouldn't be here. I know I wouldn't be here. If my mother walked out on me and abandoned me and, you know, he, he ran away from a boy's home to find her and she just said, I don't want you. Then to be sexually assaulted when you're 11 years old, that's got to do something negative to you. And I'm not trying to make excuses, but very few people just wake up and say, man, I'm going to kill somebody today and enjoy it. In short, they're just people. Have you ever like made that case to someone who has had a loved one murdered heinously by someone that has art on your website? It, it, those and I and I mean this in the in the softest way, and I'm sure a, a victim or two is going to be listening to this, and it might piss them off. But those people are broken people. They are so hateful, and I'm not trying to say this to be like insensitive. You know, if somebody raped and, and murdered my children or my wife or even my dogs, like I would have a reaction. I get it, but it doesn't mean I can't sell this. You know, if there wasn't a demand, I couldn't do it. And I didn't make this interest. We have a free press and they sensationalize these cases. And then they, somebody decides they want to buy this. Somebody has to sell it. Have you had interactions that do make you think twice? You know, when I'm buying the letters that I sell and I read them, like I know that the person who wrote these is a man posing as a woman, writing to these guys that have been in prison for 20 years and duping them, basically lying, saying, hey, uh, you want a pen pal? I feel like I'm being part of this dishonest machine that's lying and misleading inmates to get their items to sell. I mean, more from a victim or a victim's advocate perspective. Has there been any any interaction where someone has made you think about it from a, a different perspective at all? No, there's not. You seem to be really compassionate and empathetic towards the inmates that you've met, but pretty dismissive of the suffering of, of victims and family members. My heart goes out to the victims. It's 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 very tragic. The whole scene is usually tragic, but it's not my place. I'm I'm on the other team, so to speak. I know where I stand, and I know the side I've chosen. I stand with the incarcerated, the condemned, and innocent or guilt, serial murder or crime of passion. That doesn't matter. But do, if you were if you wanted to be an advocate for the incarcerated. There's probably more effective ways to do it than collecting artwork and, and memorabilia, right? Oh, yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm not an advocate, per se. I mean, I've done what I can for the, the few people I've, I've gotten to know, which, I mean, I guess it, in, in a roundabout sort of way is, is being an advocate, but it's just when you get to know somebody and you actually like them and become friend, it's hard not to. I mean, yeah, I, I don't agree with the death penalty, and I, I'd like to see it abolished, and yes, I do things to help inmates, but I'm not... Here to be an inmate advocate, that's not why I started doing this. I'm an American. I'm for capitalism, freedom, and free speech. And if I want to sell this stuff, by golly, I can do it. And if they want to make laws that say me selling my personal items is illegal, if that doesn't worry people, I mean, you're worried about your guns being taken away. Goodness, what happens when I lose the right to sell my personal property? But I mean, if somebody gets blinded by things like right, wrong, moral, immoral, 
People like that don't belong making laws. People like that belong in churches. The minute they say, well, you know what, we're making a moral law, if they start doing that here and this becomes a Christian extremist country, I'll leave because they'll kill me. I'll be put to death for sure. I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're looking for me to like, if you want me to apologize or say, you know, now that I thought about this, man, I think I should stop. Yeah, I thought about it. I'm not gonna, gonna stop because other people don't like it. Right. And don't think I'm not lashing out at you. I mean, I get it. You're just, you're asking questions and trying to field answers. So it's not like, don't think I'm, I'm not yelling at you or, or at anybody. If you want to dress up as a Nazi and march around your house, scream and seek howl, knock yourself out. I mean, I think it's ridiculous, but if that's what you want to do, I'm not going to tell you what you can't do. I have a moral issue with wearing leather and fur, but I don't stop anybody from wearing it. I, I can't. Now, I'm going to be dead, and no matter how you slice it, in less than 40 years, I don't care what other people really think. I mean, that's, I'm not here to please anybody but me. The very essence of my belief system is the absence of faith. It's the absence of faith that makes Satanism what it is. I don't believe in a god or a bunch of gods or good karma, bad karma. There just is, there is now, and uh, I'm going to live the most enjoyable life that I possibly can and not worry about reward or retribution in an afterlife. Everything is subjective to the individual, to the situation, to the society's norms. I mean, I think it's wrong to hang an animal upside down by a hook and cut its throat and then cut it up into little pieces and eat it. But most people don't even think twice about that. I mean, you're going to tell me that animals, that mammals that understand anger, fear, love, joy, don't understand the suffering? Well, that's different because it's not people. Ah, people, smeeple, there's so many of them. I'm not here to be the people person. We've kind of asked you a bunch to rationalize ethically what you do and what you're interested in, and... It, it kind of seems like one part of this is maybe just as simple as you think it's cool and that you, you know like you say you can't you can't get all of this stuff at Walmart and it's you like it I don't know I mean I've never thought of a justification and I don't I didn't set out to do it much like I would think a person who 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 collects stamps didn't set out to who wants to collect stamps I mean it seems like a real boring hobby I mean, not to say it's not as interesting as this, but it's not. It's stamps. I mean, I think it's cool to go into prisons and visit. I don't think it's cool that people go around killing people. I mean, is it interesting that a person gets it in his head that it's okay to murder a whole family? It's sad. It's cruel. It's all those things. Cool wouldn't be the word I would use to describe it. I would say interesting or, well, that's different. He ground up the woman afterwards and made a hamburger out of her. A person who would do that is definitely set aside for a person who says shoots his wife and her lover and then walks out of the room. I mean, that's not interesting. That's just what human beings do. Now, if he, the person who then grinds up the lover and makes hamburgers out of him and eats him, that's that's going the extra mile. That's I'd kind of like to know, hey, what made you want to do that? I get the killing your wife's lover part, but you ate him afterward.
That's it for Love & Radio. This episode was produced by Max Green and Stephen Jackson with Jesse Carrier. Special thanks also to Ezra Romero. We are a production of PRX's Radiotopia, whose executive producer is Julie Shapiro. Radiotopia's founding sponsor is the Knight Foundation, and made possible thanks to the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. Please follow us on the usual social media suspects, and if you haven't already, write a review for Love & Radio in iTunes. Except I'd like you to write a review of your favorite other podcast. Mine is the Moby Dick Big Read, but you can write about your own. And for good measure, why not copy and paste that review into the actual review for that other podcast? Thanks for listening.
think about having the house kind of littered with all this stuff that's exactly the word she would use it uh, cluttered is uh what she likes to say i look at it as decorating she gets it but what she doesn't like is when i want to frame a letter or a card or a court document her response is that's not art and then when i want to frame you know something john wayne gacy did she's like that's shit it's not her bag she's not into this but she knows it makes me happy and uh My wife's a saint. I'm her ticket into heaven for sure.